0: Welcome to New Mansion Church. What you're about to hear is a message from our pastor, Dr. Jeff Mars, Sr. To learn more about the church, visit newmansion.org. God bless and enjoy the message. Well, if you if you uh, picked up a bulletin this morning, you saw that uh, some strange writing on the front of it. What's that all about? Well, this, this right here is the original writing from the original book, the ledger book that... Uh, was began August 29th, 1914. Now the book, the book just simply states in, in, the, in simple penmanship uh, this word, this prayer we might say, J C. Cranville, writing this down. Uh, the clerk at the time eventually one of the early pastors of this church, but uh, he says, I pray that each brother and sister, will put their whole trust in Jesus. Just a simple prayer. But uh, that is unchanging. And that is still our prayer today. For you see, we still have a responsibility as we stand upon the shoulders of those who began uh organize this church, we might say, a hundred years ago. And we see that God has blessed through those years. Why is he blessed? Well, he has seen the opportunity to work through this church, to work through the men and women who have stepped forward for him. And today, to work through you and me. And that's what the Lord continues to do, and that's why he has blessed this church, and that's why this church is still here 100 years later. Now, we know that in some settings, in some parts of the world, churches exist that uh, continue perpetually for many, many years without any sign of of anything good or positive that seems to come from them. Churches exist just to exist. Unfortunately, that's the way the world works today in many instances. That's still not the way that we work. It's not not our intention to ever work that way. But you and I can only do our part. It's up to whatever time remains until the Lord returns, until he calls his church home. The influence that you and I have on this generation and on the generation to come and to pass that on. And so as we feel the weight of that responsibility ourselves, let us step forth and let us be used by the Lord as he desires to use us. So that we too can say that our prayer is that every brother and sister would put their whole trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we continue to do that. Well, this morning, let's turn our attention to the book of Matthew, the 24th chapter, as we continue to look at this series of events that the Lord has begun to describe. We call this the Olivet Discourse because this was upon the Mount of Olives that four of the disciples would come privately to the Lord. That's important that we remember that, that He is speaking to these four privately. Who are they? Well, they're the inner circle. uh, What we call the big three, I guess. Peter, James, and John. And one other who is added to that, Andrew. Sometimes we see Andrew being that fourth one who comes along to complete uh, the group. But what we have here is we have these two sets of brothers who are following Jesus, who are devoted to Jesus and asking him this question of these things that are yet to be and how all this will work out. And Christ's answer is given uh, in in this, the longest of his sermons, we might say, are his responses, which is in effect a sermon that he gives describing all of these events and all of the the times of the end. And and we've begun to look at that and looked at that for several weeks and we'll continue to look at that. But as we work our way through Matthew 24 and 25, uh, I want to remind you as we are looking at this prophetic portion in Matthew 24 that we're looking at the, the first part of this, which is the end times relating to the nations, the nations of the, of the world. That's what Christ is describing. Uh, here shortly after are the scriptures that... That we read today, we move down, and the Lord begins to refer more specifically to the end times relating to the nation of Israel. And finally, uh, the chapter concludes with him relating the end times as they concern the church itself. And so we, we ask ourselves, well, why all of the emphasis? Well, the Lord had a reason for that. Is it really important that we know these things? Is it really important that we understand these things? Well, I think it is it is important that we're familiar with them because the world has questions. And you and I have questions. Where do we fit into all of this? What is ahead? What is the, What are the next steps? And what can you and I do, knowing these things are ahead, knowing that the impending doom of this world is ahead, to do our part, to be the men and women of Christ that we should be, to stand up and be a witness for Him, to be the rock-solid Uh, disciples that he desires for us to be. And we're strengthened in knowing that these things are a certainty that lie ahead. And the promises of our Lord are also a certainty that lie ahead. So while we may be distressed in these events, and we wonder, and our minds worry at times, we find great comfort in the fact that the Lord is. Also, will spare his church, his bride, from these events as well. And so the Bible tells us that we take comfort in this. Seeing these things around us, we take comfort in the events that happen, knowing that our Lord will deliver us in this circumstance. This morning we're going to begin with verse 9, Matthew 24. And verse 9, Jesus has begun to describe the end times, and he says that first off it will be marked with deception of the Antichrist. And then he moved on from there. He talked about wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes. And we have looked into Revelation 6, and, and, and we have seen the parallel in that to the first four seals that are loosed as tribulation is poured out, as the wrath of God is poured out upon this world. And so as we pick up with verse 9, Matthew 24, verse 9, we'll continue to look at that parallel this morning. Jesus speaking these words, He says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for My name's sake. And then many shall be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. I thought this morning, hatred and betrayal exposed. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, as we come into your presence once again this day, we give you thanks and we give you glory for your many blessings. We thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in you. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that you give us to be an influence for you, to make a difference in this world around us. And though that may never be seen in any way, Father, you are watching. You are looking, you are applauding as we stand strong for you. And Father, may we continue in our lives, in our hearts, in our homes, in our families, in our places of business, in our times of leisure, to do those things which please you. Not looking to the world, but simply trusting in you, asking direction from you, and allowing you to be the guiding source of our life. In all things, Father, we give you thanks, we give you praise, we give you worship, in the name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. The book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand if you follow the divine outline. And where is the divine outline of Revelation found? We looked at this just a few years ago, six or seven maybe, I don't know. Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 gives us the divine outline of the book of Revelation. For in that it says, write the things that thou hast seen, and that are, and that shall be hereafter. And what Jesus is expressing to John the Revelator is he says, I want you to look at these things which are past, which are present and which are yet to be, which are to be hereafter, he says. And so as we look at the book of Revelation, we see that it outlines itself for us. In chapter 1, we see the past described to us. In chapters 2 and 3, we see the present, the church age described to us, which is the time that you and I are living in right now. But soon that time will be over and we will go on to the the things that are hereafter. Now in the Greek that word is metatauta. And it's interesting to us because Revelation 4 verse 1 begins with the words after these things. And that is the term again in the Greek metatauta. And it gives us a picture of a door that's opened in heaven and a voice that calls and says come up here. It is for you and I a picture of the rapture of the church. And the church is called up to heaven at that time. And in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, we see the church in heaven. But the church is never mentioned again during the time that begins with Revelation 6, the tribulation. We never see the church mentioned again until chapters 19 and thereafter. And there we get a picture, but during this time, from chapter 6 to chapter 19, the tribulation of the earth. We don't see that. We don't see the church. We get a picture of many, many things that go on. But the Bible describes to us in Revelation 4 and 5 a picture of the church in heaven. A picture of a church who is called up to heaven to celebrate with the bridegroom. The church being the bride of Christ. And there's an important distinction that we see there because the Bible says that you and I are not appointed to wrath. but We are appointed to comfort in the Lord. It is a time of being spared of the wrath. And the reason that we see for that is because the Bible tells us that that's what the tribulation time is, this period of time. It is a time, it says, when the wrath of God is poured out upon this world. Why would God pour out wrath upon this world? Well, as he takes his church out of this world at a time that that becomes so morally corrupt that there is no redemption left, and as he calls his bride home away from this world, then there is a refining process yet to be done. And that is that the Lord is going to shake this world. And Sheik is exactly what we see. And he's going to wake up the nation of Israel as well as he makes up the remainder of the kingdom of heaven. And that's, that seems to be what we see God doing through all of these events that follow throughout the book of Revelation. And so here we see God pouring out his wrath upon a world. Now, now that's interesting because the Bible gives us this picture of this world which we have always referred to as the devil's playground, a place that is owned by Satan. He, he's, he literally owns this world. He's called the prince of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He holds a dominion. He holds a right upon this world. And, and the reason for that is this world was lost. It was, it was lost and undone. Because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's undoing, This world was lost, and it has to be redeemed. It has to be bought back. And that's what your Bibles are. It is a story of redemption. It is a story of the buying back, the purchasing back of that which was lost. And so Christ offers that redemption. He comes, and and he freely offers himself to be the redemption for your sins and my sins. And as he redeems the world back to himself, he allows us that choice to do as we will to receive Him, or to reject Him. But ultimately, the Bible says there will come a time of judgment. And judgment is what we see, beginning in Revelation 6. It is a time of judgment, when God's wrath poured out. Now, how would we equate this? Well, one way that I might equate the the, the wrath of God poured out, in some ways, follow along with me, It's like God gives Satan the keys to the car and says, you drive. We've all done that at some time in our lives. Perhaps you recall a time in your life when you gave a teenager the keys to the car and said, you drive. And what followed after that was wrath, you see. It was wrath that was poured out because now you have said, you're in control I'm going to sit over here in the passenger seat and you do the very best that you can. And then you hung on for dear life and prayed harder than you ever had. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe you've been through that at some time of your life. There was a learning process that went on. And in essence, that's what we're seeing, that that God is surrendering this world in its totality, To the enemy of our souls. Now, he already has a dominion in this world. We understand that. We live in a world that is corrupt. It is lost. It is sinful. Bad things happen all around us. And yet, in the midst of all of this destruction and despair, in the midst of the sickness and the poverty and the disease and the death of this world, we see there is a hope, there is a light, there is an answer. And the Lord calls to every heart and every life. And he says, says, come away from these things. He says, come out from these things. Come out from among those who are involved in these things and be separate. Be separate. Be a people that is called unto me. And then he says this, he says he will redeem us. He'll receive us to himself this remarkable thing called salvation, that that we come and we surrender to Christ and He takes away the old heart from us and He gives us a redeemed heart. And no longer are we subject to the power of the Prince of this world. No longer are we subject as slaves to live for the enemy. Christ has empowered us with the ability to live for Him, to trust in Him and to walk with Him. And as we do that, as we surrender our lives to Christ, as we, as we lay down this old life, Paul referring to, to, to the old man, as he calls him, the old nature that we have. Christ gives us a new nature. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a, a new set of priorities in our life. And he says, now you follow me. And as so we trust the Lord and follow him, he says, I have great plans for you. And ultimately those plans will culminate in the catching away, the Bible says, to be caught up with the Lord. As Paul describes for us in First Thessalonians, to be caught up, the word that we use there is the word that is referred to so much in sermons, rapture. Although it's not there for us, but we see that derivative in the Greek and the Latin. The word rapture, caught up, caught away. The idea is suddenly, quickly, when not expected, to be caught away from these things. But those who don't know Christ, those who haven't put their trust in Him, will remain for those events that are yet ahead. And Jesus begins to outline these events for those who are left. And he says, beyond the, the Antichrist, beyond all of these events that we see now, there will come something else. To be delivered up. Well, the word delivered up means to literally to be arrested. It means to be taken. To be taken when you don't expect to be taken. When you think safety is there, you find safety is not there. And that's a picture that we get as Christ describes for this This world and all the events of this world. After the church is is taken away and raptured and the church is in heaven. And that's what Revelation 3.21 tells us. It says it is a picture of the church seated in heaven. The bride of Christ seated with the bridegroom in heaven. And now these events begin to unfold. And we see the parallel to that uh, in Revelation 6. And I would ask you to turn there with me if you would, turn to to Revelation 6 and let's take a look at that, the parallel to these verses that, that Christ is describing for us in Matthew 24. In Revelation 6 and verse 9, Revelation 6 and verse 9, it says this, We have already looked at these first four seals of this document that have been unloosed. And now in Revelation 6, 9 it says this, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Then they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth and white robes were given unto one of every one of them and it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled we get this horrific picture for us described to us in Revelation 6 right here, of redeemed souls under the altar. And the the idea there is that the altar being the symbol of atonement, that atonement has been made. The Bible describing for us that after the rapture of the church and this unleashing of all of these events, as we talked about the birth pains that are coming on very slowly at first and all these events as they begin to transpire, one after another after another. And it would seem that, that between the famines and the wars, a half, one half of the population of the earth is decimated. One half, that means for every two people, only one remains globally. And as we get a picture of that, now it's describing for us a time when we see these events unfolding. Jesus saying that, that men would be delivered up, would be arrested, would be taken. But the idea that we see here, besides all of these things, Revelation describing for us a time unlike any time. We've always had wars and famines and pestilence. We've always had times when false prophets arose and claimed to be something. We've had times uh, during the uh, the early years and the, the dark ages and times like this. When Christians would turn upon other Christians, it would seem they would... And they would inform others of who they were to spare their own lives. Early in the Roman Empire, it was a common thing. You either, you either worship the emperor or you paid for it with your life. And we see uh, the story described to us of some of the early church fathers who did just that. Paid for it with their very lives. We're taken in and we're told you make a choice. You either worship and you serve the emperor or you face burning at the stake. And we see the accounts of those who chose to die. They chose to give their lives rather than to deny Christ and to walk away from this most holy faith. It's a tragic thing. It's nothing new. We see it in our world today. We see Christians being martyred just for proclaiming Christ. Right now in the Middle East, we're seeing that happen. On a wide scale, Christians being, it would seem, being exterminated in this part of the world today. Young and old. Dying, how are they dying? By the sword. Their heads being removed. We read those scriptures 40 years ago, and it didn't really make a lot of sense. Why would it be that, that near the end times, and especially as we move into this period of time called the tribulation, what is this deal with the beheading of people? Why would people die in such a manner as this to take them out and to execute them by cutting off their heads? It made no sense at all. We know the French did that back in the 17th century. They had the guillotine that they set up in such a way, a gruesome death. But what do we see today? We see the effects of Islam, death by the sword, something we never expected, perhaps never predicted. Our eyes are enlightened by Scripture. You see, Scripture doesn't change. Scripture remains the same. But our eyes are enlightened as we see these things come to pass, as we recognize these events. And we're reminded again and again and again of the truth of the Bible, the truth of God's Word. How unchanging it is. And as we come to this last period of time, it tells us that things will be so bad, so horrific, that those who walk and those who who would profess Christ during this period of time will die for their faith. Now we say, how does that work? The church is raptured, the church is gone. Who are these souls that we see under the altar? Who are these martyrs that we see? Well, the Bible describes to us this, that that after Christ takes away His church, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who evangelize on this planet for those who remain ultimately paying a great price for that. There's going to be two witnesses there who proclaim to all of the world that Jesus is Lord. There's going to be an angel flying across the heavens and proclaiming salvation and proclaiming judgment as well. In other words what we see here is we see a picture of God reaching out to a world where he has poured out his wrath and his judgment And he is looking to extract anything that is left. Anything that's left. It's amazing when we consider how merciful our God is. With you and I, he has given us chance after chance, time after time. He has appealed to our hearts again and again and again. He has patiently and lovingly walked with us. He has restored us. He has picked us up when we have fallen. And he offers us a great reward in heaven. And even in the midst of those who reject him and reject him and reject him, he says there's still going to be a last chance. But so much worse than we can ever begin to imagine. And I've heard people say before, well, I'll take my chances. I'll take my chances. I, I'm not ready to make a decision for Christ. So the rapture of the church comes. So the tribulation comes. I'll take my chances. Well, right off, your chances are one and two. But you're going to die if that's you. And then to profess Christ in that day and time to stand against the, the persecution, to stand against, against all of these things that come against you, to stand as a, a Second Thessalonians describes to us, a time when the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is removed and hell is unleashed upon this earth. If we can't stand for Christ today, why would we think we could stand for him then? If we feel lukewarm in our walk with the Lord today, can you imagine in that day and time? Perhaps this is for those who have never heard. Perhaps this is for those whose hearts are cold and have never known. Predominantly, the Bible describes for us, it is for the nation of Israel. As God continues to work with them fulfilling His covenant with Israel bringing them to a salvation those who remain those who are alive those who make it out those who are still alive at that time but those who live the Bible says they'll die. You profess Christ you lose your head. Or you can turn state's witness and you can Turn in your friends, your family. And the Bible says that's exactly what we'll do. Those who remain in this this world, those who even will profess Christ to walk with Him, will deny Christ, will turn one another against each other. Hatred, deception, envy, jealousy. Why? Because... The bottom line is this. Nobody wants to die. And to die for your faith? Well, that takes a lot. Where would you be today if you had to make a decision, had to make a choice? To live or to die for Christ? And what decision would you make? And you live in a world where grace abounds And where God's Spirit is working. Where would you be in a world of the tribulation? When hell is unleashed and evil is abundant all around. And things get worse and worse and worse. You see, that's what remains. That's what stands for those who don't know Christ today. That's the future. That's the reality that's there for them. And you say, well, that's not me. I know where I stand with Christ. I love the Lord. I'm safe and secure with Him. But it's a reminder for us. We don't just live for ourselves. We live for Christ. And He's reaching out to a lost and dying world to bring them in while there's still time. That's what He desires to do. Satan's got the keys, and he's, he's going to drive during this time. And it's going to be a horrific time that's ahead. But for you and I, there's a hope, there's a promise that's there. Well, let's move on. It says in Revelation 7, just one chapter down from there, verse 9 says this It says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. The Bible describing for us a time when there will be a multitude that stands before the Lord. But they're crying out, you see. They've been crying out before this, saying, How long? How long until vengeance comes? And how long until, until restitution comes? And the word is this. Until the rest of your brothers and sisters are killed. That's how long. Until they're slaughtered. Until they're murdered. But ultimately, God will gather together those who will love him and trust in him. Standing before the throne with white robes. Who is this multitude? It describes for us a picture of the tribulation saints, which are yet to come. Now again, Revelation 3.21 says the bride, that's you and I, are seated with Christ around his throne. These stand before the throne, described as the saints who came out of the great tribulation. And we'll look at that more in depth as we go along. But the thing that we're reminded here is the pressure is so great. The world is massacring each other. And it's a time like no time. Like nothing conceivable for us upon this planet. And you and I, we don't want to be here for that time. And certainly we don't want our loved ones to be here for that time. We don't want anyone to be here for that time. And it's a reminder to us during this time that we have, during this age of grace in which we live, during this time in which the Holy Spirit moves and works so freely, in which God is restraining the sin that would consume us so easily, in which intercession is being made for us on a daily basis as we call upon the Lord. This is the time of grace. This is the time to work. This is the time to reach out. This is the time to put our whole trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is that time coming. Some will defect, they won't pay the price. They will turn away. They'll save their lives, but yet they will lose their lives. When we lose our life for Christ, it's saved. Defection, disaster, plague, illness, inconceivable things that lie ahead. And sometimes we look at those things and we say, well, is that really true? Is that really to come? Are those things really real? I remind you this morning, Jesus spoke these things himself. These are his words recorded for us. Jesus referring to the writings of the prophet Daniel, telling us that Daniel wrote these things as well. It wasn't someone else. Jesus says it was Daniel. It wasn't written after the fact. Jesus said it was prophecy. And Jesus saying, Behold, I have told you all things. As we see the time quickly approaching, the Bible says. How much longer? Stand with me if you would. For a time of reflection. A time of searching. Perhaps for you, a time of commitment. What has to happen before our Lord returns? Isn't there certain things that have to happen? Don't we have more time? Well, you see, that's the thing. First off, none of us know. Our Lord says no man knows the hour or the time of his coming. Not even Christ himself knew that time. Not even he knew that time. So if someone tells you they know that time, they obviously don't know that time. But what he said is, I will come at a time that you think not. We don't expect him to come right now. He could come right now. He could call his church away right now. Are we ready to go? Are we sold out to Christ? Are we committed to him? Have we placed our lives in his hands? Have we placed our whole trust in him? What about our friends and our loved ones? What remains for them? This morning this altar is open. It's available to you. I'm going to ask some of you to come as we spend a time of prayer around this altar and call on the Lord and intercede for those who are lost and undone this day. that the hope of all the world and all the earth should appear, should work, and should intercede. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus this day. Father, we're asking you to be gracious to souls that are undone, that are lost and dying this day. Those who don't know you, those who are wavering, those who are, are, are walking in the balances, Father, between life and death, between good and evil, between right and wrong, between salvation and the things of this world. Father, we ask you that you would be gracious this day, that as you send your Holy Spirit to move and bless, to reach out to their hearts, to speak to their lives, Father, to influence them for good, Lord. Do a saving work, Father, we pray. Gather your children together for you. And for us who profess you, Father, and those who love you, Father, help us to love you more, to be more committed to you, to be on fire for you, to hear your word and your spirit as you speak to us, to walk in your paths of righteousness, Father, and to be a witness and to be an influence wherever we can. Father, may our words be seasoned as You give them to us. May our lives reflect the hope that we have in You. Father, reach out to our lost loved ones, our friends, those who are in our families this day. Bring salvation to them, Father, we pray. Do a supernatural work in their lives, Father. And Lord, use us where necessary as your willing servants to walk in your paths. Lift us up, Father, to heavenly places that we may know and see and taste that you are good and that your righteousness abounds and prevails forever. And Father, in all things, we will give you the thanks and the praise and the glory of Of those things that we see and yet unseen. Those things that remain. Those things yet to be, Father. We exalt you. We lift you up. We worship your holy name. We give you praise in the name of Jesus. There is a happy day coming when God gathers his children home. There is a day of rejoicing yet in the future. As God draws all things to a completion. There is a comfort for the saints. Let's be comforted in knowing what Christ has done for us. And let's be busy for what he has yet for us to do. In this time that remains. May the Lord bless you this day. And may you receive from him. Liberally as you have asked. That's his promise for us. Thank you for joining us at New Mansion Church Online. We would love to connect with you at newmansion.org. You can connect with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Marsh Sr. at pastorjeffmarsh.com. God bless, and we hope to see you again soon.